Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals to state senators to mayors to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. North Carolina Representative Brandon Lofton is in the fight for democracy, civil rights, and the future of the Tar Heel State. He flipped a red district and has been the target of gerrymandering ever since. Yet every session, he's worked hard to improve education and create jobs. We talk about how he balances his public service, legal practice, and family. I found him to be an inspiration, and I hope that you do too. Enjoy. North Carolina Representative Brandon Lofton, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thank you very much for having me. I want to start with your personal past in terms of your path into public service, but I actually think we should take a step back because you've been an advocate for recognizing North Carolina's role in the civil rights movement. And can you talk a little bit about what that role was, why you're trying to honor it, and then how it informed your public service? Yeah, thank you. So I actually came to North Carolina to work for a civil rights law firm, Ferguson Stein Chambers, which is one of the first, I think the first integrated law firm uh, in the South. That firm handled uh, school desegregation cases, voting rights cases. So straight out of law school, I had the opportunity to work with Julius Chambers, who, you know, argued these cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court and learned a lot from him and really learned about how he sacrificed um, despite the fact that his house was bombed, his car was bombed, his office was bombed. And he persevered through all of that to try to help create more opportunities for North Carolina students and students across the nation. In undergrad, I studied the civil rights movement in law school, studied civil rights ideology and, and laws, and then, like I said, started out working with a civil rights law firm. And up until recently, however, I realized I really didn't understand what the civil rights movement was about. I traditionally thought of it as a movement for about fairness and about opportunity and about equal treatment. And all that is true, but it really wasn't until I was looking through old photographs of the movement. In particular, I saw a photograph of the march from Selma to Montgomery. And there's a famous photograph there marching along and, you know, you see the flag waving, you see a plane flying overhead, and you see people from all different backgrounds, white, black, different parts of the country, marching with the American flag. And it just kind of occurred to me that what they were doing was more than just fighting for equality or fighting for opportunity. They were nation building. They were helping to perfect our democracy. They were helping to perfect opportunity available to all all U.S. citizens. The work that they did in securing the Voting Rights Act didn't just help, you know, African Americans vote. It helped essentially secure free and fair open elections for the first time on a wide scale basis in the modern era, you know, since what? Reconstruction. So, 
you know, that kind of effort in terms of nation building, uh, in terms of building our democracy, that aspect of the civil rights movement, I think I had underappreciated. And learning more about North Carolina's role in that site of, again, the sit-in movement on February 1st with the four A&T four who sat in at Woolworths, Julius Chambers and his role with integrating schools. I read that the first version of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech was actually delivered in North Carolina and Rocky Mount. The Student Nonviolent Coalition was founded in North Carolina. There's a rich history in our state and our role in not just helping to fight for fairness and equality, but actually nation building with help in our country. And so I thought we should be proud of that. We should celebrate it. And we should tell that story that, you know, our process of securing democracy is an ongoing effort. And it's an effort that involves people from all different backgrounds. And so that's why I was fortunate enough to be able to work in that bill. Yeah, I think that's just such an important way to look at it, especially as we look at some of the challenges today, right? If we if we think about voting rights as for only to protect a certain group of people who are extremely vulnerable, right? But if we see it as fundamental to the American experiment, it's a different way to think about think about those rights. Can you talk a little bit about your efforts around voting rights with in North Carolina? couldn't be more important for the historical reasons you talked about and the basic fairness reasons, but also as a state that is purple and, and you know, every vote really matters, not only in your state, but to the rest of the country. Yeah, absolutely. So voting rights obviously is essential. Protecting the rights or to access people to have access to the right to vote is essential. You know, as you know, in North Carolina, we have a history of our legislature getting in and interfering with those rights, uh, whether it's gerrymandering, whether it's voter ID laws, or the provisions that, you know, the Supreme Court has ruled targeted African-American voters with surgical precision. And when you hear phrases like that, you know, it catches your attention, it focuses your attention on who's being targeted. But again, it kind of misses the big point, which is it's not just about the voters who are being targeted. It's not just about African-Americans. It's about the health of our democracy. And so I think we have to be vigilant in safeguarding the access to the ballot. And we have to be vigilant in trying to end gerrymandering. You know, our state uh, Supreme Court just, I think this past year, throughout the gerrymandered districts that were drawn and ordered new districts drawn. Of course, our legislature is now appealing that to the U.S. Supreme Court. And we've also had a turnover in our state Supreme Court. So it's not clear where all of that will end up. But the principle, I think, is critical and should not be lost, which is that your state government should not be using its power to minimize the effectiveness of your vote simply because it doesn't agree with your party. That's the exact opposite of a democracy. And so I think when we talk about voting rights, when we talk about gerrymandering, again, we can kind of miss the big picture. We can think about fairness which is important. We can think about political gamesmanship, which happens. But both of those things miss the big picture, which is the accountability of the government. The government should not use its power to hurt your ability to hold it accountable. And I think we have to be vigilant in protecting that. I mean, we're now, as we speak, we're at the end of 2022. You know, redistricting was supposed to happen per the Constitution every 10 years. And so now we're two years in, and then you imagine appeals. And so even if courts get to the right decision, what does that do to representation on the ground for all these years while, while it's being fought out? Yeah, so the state courts got to the right decision when they threw out the original maps. And so the state legislature redrew the state legislative maps and the congressional maps 
or actually they had a special master draw the congressional maps. And of course, our legislature is now appealing that to the U.S. Supreme Court. Our speaker has said that when they come back this session, that they will redraw the congressional maps. So what I anticipate happening is they are going to redraw the, the congressional maps. Our state court has changed. And so it's not clear that the state court, Supreme Court, will uphold the same decision that was held earlier, which is that partisan gerrymandering violates your voting rights. Our legislative leaders have also said that they plan to redraw even the state legislative maps. So if that happens, so just for context, I just this past November won re-election as my third election in a third different district, not because of anything I've done, but just because of the fact that we've had three different sets of maps. And so if this happens, then in 24, there'll be an additional set of maps. So that means in four consecutive elections, you have four different maps being drawn. And I think, again, it causes confusion. And it's, again, an example of trying to minimize accountability. Yeah, and you you want your le- your elected officials to have a relationship with their elected officials and vice versa. And if you keep changing the constituencies, nobody knows anyone. Right. It's a problem. But more to the point, it's, it's just a problem of the legislature just trying to pick its voters and minimize that, that accountability. Oh, my gosh. That's uh, crazy. We started by I wanted to hear your story of getting into public service and finding yourself representing these various districts, even though even though you haven't moved. Can you talk a little bit about what's drawn you with all the different ways there are to serve into elected office? There's a long and a short version. So the shorter version is, you know, in my time serving as a civil rights lawyer, straight out of law school, you know, I had a client, he was discriminated against, we took it to court, and we won. And it was like one of the greatest moments of my young professional life. Here, it was someone who was treated unfairly, and we took his case to trial, and we won. But the other side appealed, and or threatened to appeal. It took a while for the judge to actually enter the order. And so, because of that, my client didn't get his money for a while. And in the meantime, he still had health challenges. He had problems finding work. And so, I watched my client struggle even though we did everything we could to try to help him and try to fix what happened to him. So that really illustrated for me the limits of litigation to try to help what happens in terms of uh, things that impact people's lives. And so I started to get more involved on commissions and boards and task forces for the city of Charlotte. Also became a public finance lawyer. So started trying to understand how projects get built, how schools get financed, how communities get funded. And so that effort uh, led me to kind of go down a different path in terms of trying to find ways to fix the conditions in which people are living. Then after having served on boards for a while and worked in that space for a while, in 2018, I was recruited to run to help break the supermajority. So, you know, we had a Democratic governor, but the Republican legislature essentially had the ability to override his veto anytime they wanted. And so I was asked to help run to flip the seat in 2018, despite the fact of, you know, it not being a very convenient time for me. I was a partner at a law firm, two kids who at that point were in fifth and sixth grade. But it was one of those things where I knew where, if nothing else, if I won and helped flip that seat and we got the governor's veto power, then I helped change the political dynamic and calculation in our state. And that was, you know, that was a real impact. And so 
won the seat, first Democrat to win the seat, first African-American to represent this seat. The district as of 2022, the new, new district was 83% white. It's 39% unaffiliated voters. And then the remaining 60% split between Democrats and Republicans. It's a high wealth, highly educated, leafy neighborhood area within Charlotte. But they were just tired of, of what was going on in Raleigh and wanted to see some more balance and checks and balances in our government. And tell me about that first campaign. That's a tough district to start your political career in. How did you engage with the voters? And then as these districts keep getting gerrymandered and changed, how do you establish relationships in that way? Yeah, the good news, bad news of it is that our districts are fairly compact. So I can drive 15, 20 minutes and cross my district because our districts are required to have the same you know, population or roughly the same population. I have colleagues who have three or four counties. They can drive two hours before they reach the same number of people that I can cross in 15, 20 minutes. There are three of us in the legislature all from the same part of town. <laughs> Say we're from South Charlotte. My district's actually the real South Charlotte. So that made it easier in terms of just having that many voters in a relatively compact space. And so what we did is I reached out to people I knew in different parts of the district and had them open their homes and invite their neighbors. You know, word of mouth helps a lot. I'm knocking on a lot of doors, introducing myself to voters, meeting people on their doorstep, letting them look you in the eye, see what you're about and what you care about, letting them know that you're listening to them, that you're there to help them. And that helped because on the other side, as you can imagine, when I first ran and actually in every election since then, there have been efforts to try to paint me as some dangerous outsider or someone who can't be trusted and just the types of campaigns you would expect to try to make people fearful. But because we had a really robust effort with going out and meeting as many people as possible, knocking on as many doors as possible, showing up to people's living rooms and having people invite their neighbors, I think that helped a lot so that people can know where you stand and look you in the eye and see that you're not what they're saying about you. And I think that helped out in this district. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between legislating and litigating, right? Like you're in the legal system, but it's your two different ends of it. And so what that looks like or what that experience has been. Yeah. So I think fortunately for me, legislating is sort of like a mix of my two legal experiences. So I started out as a civil rights lawyer, mostly litigating. And then I left and became a public finance lawyer, which is all transactional. So it's not in court. You're representing your client. The other side's representing their client, but they want to see a deal happen. So that's the kind of mindset that I took to the legislature that, you know, you have to have in a minority, right? So you represent your interests, you represent your constituency, you represent your core values, but you try to work with the other side to find ways to get something done to help people and improve conditions in their lives. And I think it's not hard. It hasn't been hard to try to find people on the other side to work with, to find ways to compromise and get those things done. Sometimes some issues are just core, like gerrymandering, voting rights, education funding, and others that, you know, it ends up being more like litigation than transactional work, where at the end of the day, it really is we're in our corners and we're arguing over the merits of a particular issue. But oftentimes you try to take a transactional lawyer approach, which is I represent my side, you represent your side. Let's see if we can find some ground that we can work together to make something happen for the people in North Carolina. So tell me about some of the 
priorities. It's tough when you're in a minority to move an agenda. But what have been your priorities over the terms and then going into your new term? What are you hoping to accomplish? Yeah, so my priorities have been protecting rights and expanding opportunities. So I've worked to help our nonprofits that are serving people in North Carolina. I've worked to try to increase teacher pay, try to increase investments in law enforcement, to try to end gerrymandering, so expand Medicaid, other things that really impact people's lives, right? When people are sick, they want to know that health care is available. And in North Carolina, we're one of the few states that has not yet expanded Medicaid, and it's hurting people. It's driving up costs. It's hurting our rural hospitals. You know, where I live, I can drive, you know, 10, 15 minutes in any direction and in an emergency room or urgent care. And some of the more rural areas, obviously, that's not the case. And we have the ability to help those individuals by expanding Medicaid, accepting those federal dollars, and helping with the unreimbursed costs that these hospitals are facing. In terms of schools, you know, I've worked to increase teacher pay in our budget increase funding for teaching assistants, as well as our principals and administrative staff, school bus drivers. You know, I talked to a student, a 10th grader, earlier this year who was in high school and had five classes. In three of her classes, she didn't have a teacher, including math. So this is someone trying to learn high school math without a teacher. And it's not the kind of class where you can just have any random substitute, right? You need to have someone who actually knows how to teach math. And the reason, you know, that we're in this position is because we just have not kept pace in terms of our school funding with providing pay increases for our teachers. And so that's something that I've tried to work on as well as other members of the caucus. And again, we talked about voting rights. We talked about gerrymandering. These are things I think that are going to be key going forward. Obviously, being in a minority, again, you find some ways that you can try to advance some of these issues. So I've worked with people across the aisle to try to get budget flexibility for our schools try to increase funding for kids with learning differences and try to, again, help nonprofits. And then there are other areas where you'll just be in your corners and arguing about the merits or downsides of different approaches. And again, that comes up in voting rights and gerrymandering and things like that. How do you balance moving a legislative agenda with a law practice, kids, everything that you need to do? Is there any tricks to it or is it just a grind? It's just a grind. <laughs> there, are, there are no shortcuts. There are no tricks. I'm very fortunate. I have a really great team at my law firm. When it's campaign time, I have an outstanding campaign team. I have a really great legislative assistant. And so obviously, like anything else in life, you learn that you know you can't do anything by yourself, that you need to be able to have great people who can help you. And then fortunately, I have, again, a transactional practice. And so that means when a deal starts, I know exactly when it's supposed to close. I know when I can schedule you know, deadlines and meet deadlines, put them in my calendar and kind of manage around that, as opposed to some of my colleagues who have who have to be in court in person or who have deals that pop up and have to close like the next day. My deals don't do that. And so that helps me manage it a little bit as well. And it's something that I can do no matter where I am, because it's mostly emails, phone calls, and now Zoom, as opposed to in-person meetings. So that helps as well. Any advice for whether it's a young attorney out there or just anyone who's thinking they want to get engaged, they're worried about the direction that their community or state is going, what's the most effective way to engage to make some of the change that you make? 
Just do it. Just get involved. Don't hesitate. Don't listen to that voice in your head that we all have that says you can't do it, that, you know, someone else is going to do it. Don't take that for granted. You know, growing up, there was this culture, this belief that politics was something for other people. It was something that you shouldn't be interested in. And I always found that just a weird notion. (laughs) It was wrong to want to serve, that it was wrong to want to be involved with trying to help make things better for people. So if anyone out there is interested, we need you. We need more people engaged. We need more people involved. I think we're living through a period of time where fundamental questions about our democracy about what kind of government we're going to have are on the table. They're up for grabs. We can't take these things for granted. And none of us can afford to sit out, whether it's running for office, whether it's volunteering on a campaign, whether it's donating, knocking on doors, whatever it is, we all need to find a way to chip in and get involved. Any thoughts about next steps for you? Is there other office or are you reaching a point now where you might want to find another way to contribute like what's the when you think about the trajectory of your career what comes to mind i think right now i'm really focused on trying to figure out what the next two years might look like in the legislature i have two teenage boys right now in high school any parent can tell you that's that's a handful in and of itself i'm just fortunate to have the opportunity to serve we have enormous challenges in front of us in North Carolina and opportunities. And I think if we continue to work hard and show up, and then I think we can move things forward. So I look forward to playing whatever role is needed to help move that agenda forward. Well, Representative Lofton, we are so happy to have you in the New Deal. We are at the New Deal Conference, which is a great annual gathering, and it's wonderful to have you here, and it's wonderful to have you doing this important work. And really, as you said, building the foundations, doing some nation building that feels like needs to be done right now. And you're doing it in one of the most important places. So we're grateful to have you. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.